This is exactly right. If you're a fan of meticulously crafted worlds that reimagine every little detail, then you'll enjoy the podcast Imaginary Worlds. Host Eric Malinsky spent over a decade working in public radio and uses those skills to create a sound-rich podcast that features interviews with Andy Weir, who wrote The Martian, the writers of hit TV shows like Star Trek Strange New Worlds, designers of games like Magic the Gathering, and the puppeteer who designed Miss Piggy. You can find Imaginary Worlds wherever you're listening to this podcast. Welcome to another episode of I Saw What You Did. My name is Millie DeCherico. I'm Danielle Henderson. And we're back with you again to talk about the wonderful world of movies and whatnot. Um, Danielle, what is up with you? I've had like, um, I've had a week where I wasn't able to get much extracurricular stuff done. Yes. But I did watch the first episode of Blackbird, the new Taron Egerton series on Apple TV. Ooh, so... Let me just say, in terms of the show, there's a lot going on in the show in terms of like Ray Liotta. It's like, I think one of his last roles. Oh, wait, wait. So what, tell tell me what it's about. I know nothing about it. Oh, well, it's about this guy in the 90s who's a total drug dealer and gun dealer. um, And he goes to prison for guns and drugs. (laughs) He gets caught with guns and drugs. Uh, And they basically give him a 10-year sentence and then they offer to commute his sentence if he transfers into a super tough prison and tries to find out from a serial killer where all these bodies are buried. Otherwise, they're going to have to let this serial killer out of jail. Like, he's going to have an appeal and he might win his appeal. So it's very like, shit, ooh, he's got a timeline and ooh, there's all this stuff going on and like, ooh, he's in jail, but ooh, he did, like, it's just like all this stuff going on. Um, oh, so it's very, and I, it's based on a true story. I don't know how much of it is true in the show yet, mm-hmm. um, but like Dennis Lehane is a producer and, and creator. And so it's very like that. <laughs> it's very okay. Lehaney. But I just, I just have to say, and perhaps I almost, I almost did a screenshot and texted you <laughs> this <laughs> because Taryn Egerton got so swole for this fucking role. Shit. And I was like, he did not have to do that to us. Yo, he was t- he was under some total fitness control, is what you're telling he me. He was under total fitness control. He was eating chicken and broccoli. Wow. And then deadlifting 400 pounds. Just go ahead and look up a picture. Taryn Egerton Blackbird. Just take a moment. Hold, please. We're about to do this right now. How- it's like live. T-A-R... T-A-R-O-N. O-O-N. Eh. <laughs> E-G-E-R-T-O-N. Like, is it? What kind of Taryn? All right, let's see. And Blackbird. Oh, Black! I got to put in Blackbird. You got to put in Blackbird. All kinds of stuff. Okay, let's see. Ooh. Do that image what? search. Oh. Yes. yes. Wait, is that a Photoshop of no. his head? Oh, no, it's not. No. that This is what I'm talking about. I thought I was going to get a little nerdy Taryn Egerton show. He is uh-uh. so fucking jacked is he working out in prison is this what i'm looking at right now oh yeah he's doing fucking like two finger push-ups and shit okay yeah okay this just changed everything it literally okay no shade 
uh, sir, no shade. It looks like your head is photoshopped on like Arnold Schwarzenegger from Commando's body. Yeah. It's um, totally destabilizing, right? Wow. I was wow. I was just I was shaken. I was not expecting yeah. anything like that. I thought I was getting a little nerdy Taron Egerton, yeah. little Kingsman, like fit but nerdy. Yes, yes. And he did not have to do this to us. He did not have to go this hard. Wow. Yeah, this is like kind of beyond Tom Brady. Did I say I keep saying Tom Brady. <laughs> He's on the brain. Oh my God! What the fuck? His name is Tom. What Tom Hardy. Tom Hardy. <laughs> Tom Brady sucks. Tom, Tom Brady Hardy sucks. rules. And also, come at me. I don't give a fuck. I'll spend all day in the DMs talking about how much Tom Brady sucks. I mean, look at him. He's not our people. Come on. Tom, Tom Hardy rules. <laughs> Tom Brady can eat eighteen hundred bags of fucking cheeseburgers <laughs> and potatoes and other shit he avoids all the time. Taron Egerton, Rocket Man Egerton, did it to us. I am so flustered. I turned my camera off. I'm sorry. Uh, <laughs> and and he's straight fucking in this show. Uh uh-uh. uh. Uh-uh. It's not right. It's not no, right. I don't is, appreciate it. This is a personal vendetta against you. It sounds yeah. like somebody is like fucking with you big time. One hundred percent. Because he's also out here doing interviews and being like, "Yeah, I hope I get to do a third Kingsman." And I'm like, not looking like that, you don't? What the fuck? How You're going to have to <laughs> deflate. How are we going to explain Eggy? Yeah, you got to deflate big time. How are we going to explain Eggy if he comes back looking like fucking Trogdor, the Burninator? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You got to let some of that fucking, open that valve, let some of that air out. Yeah, or bare mins are going to have to go in like Tom Hanks in the Boz Lerman movie and just put on, <laughs> put on some prosthetics because we don't believe you in this. You're not... You're you're prison jacked. You're not a a, a a sophisticated suit guy. You're ripping no. suits in half when you're putting them on. Although, and yet again, he didn't have to do it to us. There is a scene, turtleneck, black turtleneck, gray suit, looks so fine. Yeah, and I'm like, this is little Ter- little Taron Egerton. Uh, let me ask you this: <laughs> was like in his 30s, P.S. But little Taron Egerton had the goddamn audacity. Yeah, he had the fucking. He had the fucking balls to do it. <laughs> um, let me ask you this. Is he doing an American accent in this fi- in this in this film, in this uh, series, in this series? Yes, he fucking is. OK, let, I have to go. You I have a, another question. Is he good at it? Is he good? Yes, at he doing fucking it? is. Because okay. it's like Midwest American accent. So it's not like Chicago or New York or like anything specific to a region. And as a, OK. As an Anglophile, I want to ask you this question specifically, because do you feel like British, Irish, Scottish people do better American accents than Americans doing those accents? Oh, absolutely. Are you kidding me? How many series of The Wire, how many seasons of The Wire did I watch before I realized that half of those motherfuckers were British? Yes. (laughs) Yes. Same thing with Battlestar Galactica. Half of those motherfuckers are British. Jamie Bamber is not American. <laughs> like, he straight up talks like me. Yeah. And then you hear Americans doing other accents, and it's just so cartoonish. It's like, oh, crikey. Yeah, like, cue for the loo eating it, like, or whatever. <laughs> and you're just like, what? This is terrible. 
it's this is terrible. Or, I don't know why why they're not getting the same voice coaches. I don't know what's going on, but it is always distracting to me when an American does any other accent. I'm like, you're not pulling it off. Yeah, I I I just think it's like every time. Uh, yes, I'm watching somebody from like the hard fucking streets of like Boston, Chicago, Baltimore, Memphis. I'm like. I find out later in a Google search that person's actually born and raised in like the UK. And I'm like, what? How is that possible? Every time. Every time. They're like, oh, this guy's from like Barnstable. Or fucking <laughs> <laughs> Kill Kenny. And you're like, what? <laughs> He's running those moors with the fucking Kate Bush dancer and and Olivia <laughs> de Havilland from the heiress. Like, and I'm like, wow, you sound like you literally are a cop from fucking yeah. Memphis, it's crazy. And what I love is when you see that that switch when you're like, all right, I just watched this whole movie or TV series, and they're doing a very believable American accent, and then they'll be doing an interview and be like, oh yeah, like, and you're like, wait, what? Like <laughs> both of their accents are lovely. What the fuck? So you're saying you watched the first episode of The Blackbird and you're in? I'm fucking in. Yeah, I'm fucking in. And actually. I think, so I watched the first one. I fell asleep. I started the second one and fell asleep. But part of the reason I was going to text you is I woke up at the end of the episode, literally didn't see a minute of it, like just fell asleep during the credits. But I woke up at the end because the song they use over the credits is the Crash Test Dummies. Fuck off. (laughs) So I wake up out of a dead sleep to that three bald motherfucker being a once there was a girl and i was like what am i having a fucking what is this nightmare oh it's my own room it's also a hundred goddamn degrees in my house right now oh jesus so it's entirely possible that i just passed out and didn't fall asleep i just passed out and then just woke up to that song (laughs) and i'm like millie would love this and then i passed out again and i forgot so y'all are going to have to, if you have no fucking idea what we're talking about right now, you're going to have to go to one of our bonus episodes to listen to us. Okay. I don't know what happens to us when we record bonus episodes. And this is not us pushing the bonus on you. Look, we all want you to be Wondery Plus subscribers and listen to this content that we give because it is loose as hell. And for some reason, we end up talking a lot about music which is so funny because i guess maybe it's just like i don't know we always are so movie heavy on these main feed episodes that like whenever we're just like let go we just start talking about all the bands we knew from like the 90s and beyond we had like literally like a 30 minute conversation about the crash test dummies (laughs) and i revealed this like urban legend that danielle had never heard <laughs> about the lead singer of the Crash Test Dummies having three testicles, and that's why his voice is so low. Yes, right? it, there, it was. It was like a ver- like you can verify this because there's a reason, and it absolutely is not true. To the point where the man has probably spent more of his life explaining that he does not have three testicles than he did <laughs> being in that band. <laughs> that's why he's like. I can't wait to get this check from Blackbird because I am I am tired. I am tired of answering the three fucking balls question and I need I need a check. I need, I need a, something. If I'm going to have to talk about this non-existent ball for the rest of my goddamn grown-ass life, someone's going to pay me. Well, 
look, at, like you, I recently watched the first episode of a new television <gasps> show. Ooh, which one? It's called The Rehearsal, and it is Nathan Fielder's new show on HBO Holy Max. shit. If you don't know Nathan Fielder, he did Nathan for You on Comedy Central many, oh many God. years ago. Extremely, extremely funny and awkward uh, and funny. Well, listen, let me just tell you, Nathan Fielder got jacked for the... No, he did not get jacked for the at all. <laughs> I was like, he, I actually saw that cover of New York Magazine that he did and he did the opposite of getting jacked. He's like, let me just slope this a little bit. He stayed the same. He, he just was like, I'm going to stay the same. Which, to his credit, is fucking remarkable. Because, yes. like, over the past, like, few years, you know, we had this pandemic thing. And he stayed looking the same. So I'm like, good for you. I don't know anybody that stayed the same. No. Um, So on the other end of the spectrum from the Blackbird, I would say, is this show, The Rehearsal, (laughs) which is so, it's like, the scope of it is so fucking insane that I'm like, I want to get your take on it. Yeah, because I only know that it's about like him rehearsing difficult life conversations or something with people yes and so what so i've only watched the first episode but it's essentially he finds somebody just in like the old nathan for you style where you know somebody he you know he puts out an ad on craigslist or something to you know he wants to help somebody which is like wild that people answer him still um (laughs) and then show up being like okay, yes, let's enter into this contractual agreement to be on this television show together. As somebody that has, like, a difficult situation, like a question or, or, or you know, um, the first episode is about a guy who has been lying to his team trivia folks about the fact that he has a master's degree. <gasps> and he wants to tell somebody on his trivia team that, he wants to come come clean because apparently she's been like forwarding him jobs that require <sighs> master's degrees. And he's like, I'm sorry, I've been lying to you for like 20 years. I was going to so, say, like, does he need is, is he like bad at trivia? And he's like, P.S. I don't have a master's degree no. or is he good at trivia? And he's like, actually, it's a doctorate. <laughs> he's incredible at trivia and <gasps> it may be his entire life, which <gasps> is remarkable. So he wants to come clean and then. Nathan Fielder comes in and helps him kind of vet out every possible scenario that could happen in this one situation. So it's like he just kind of runs through the possible reactions from the other person. And you know how it is on Nathan for you. He just goes into these like corners of shit where I'm just like, how the fuck are you even thinking about this? So he's like in the grand style, he's hired an actor to play this team trivia person then he's hired a guy that's like the guy that he's helping like so that they can practice their interactions on the show the craziest thing is he's built the bar where they do team trivia and built it on a soundstage and i'm like as a showrunner i have to ask you how fucking expensive is that i can't believe that they the Spend budget that kind of money. That's oh, yeah. just... the budget for this show is already blowing my mind. 
it's it's already it's already so absurd to me like how people throw around numbers when it comes to episodes of TV where they're like very casually like oh well you know it'll be like 3 to 4 million an episode and i'm like what <laughs> for this shit i'm writing what <laughs> so it's I, like bare mans even for a reality show to build a, a fucking new set and maybe even multiple sets for yeah. every single person he's helping yeah he got exactly. paid for this show well it's like they so they built a replica of the guy's apartment they built a replica of the bar which looks insane like the bar they left no stone unturned <gasps> they have a fucking half deflated mylar balloon sitting in front of an air conditioner like oh that has been in the bar for like 14 ah! years or something i mean it's just they got like every detail right and i mean i just was thinking oh of, about it in terms of the production cost which by the way like good for you nathan for you for yeah. you getting that money to build that shit like congrats it's so funny because i was like i was just thinking about it in terms of where i work and yeah. <laughs> and i was like <laughs> They build one set. They're like, we do everything on this set. Like, this set will last us 10 years. We will fucking marry people. We will do baptisms on this set. We will, you know, like, everything is on this one set because we don't want to build another one for a long time. Fucking reenactments and, like, (laughs) holy shit. Yeah, that also, how much fun for the production designer to be able to build those new sets all the time for Nathan, for the new Nathan Fielder show. Yeah. Oh, no, I was thinking that too. I was like, what a fucking dream as a production designer. I I couldn't imagine a better job. And to be honest with you, like, I think Nathan Fielder is like, he's one of these guys. I mean, I, you know me. I mean, I'm a a very cautious stan of things. let alone men. Sorry, I just am. But it's that thing we don't, where I'm we like, we don't have to be sorry. We don't have any fucking rights anymore. Men can <laughs> yeah. eat it. Okay. I'm gonna then insult I'm... men, and they can just take it because we don't have any rights anymore. So fuck you. <laughs> then I don't feel bad. Fuck off. No, I um. But the thing about it is that he's so like, as an entertainer, I was like, yo, this show is fucking funny. Like I thought Nathan for you was literally one of the funniest shows oh. ever. Like. So, so funny fucking um, funny and i don't know but it's just that it's very it's in that style if if you know uh anything about his comedy it's very provocative it's like really uh grand in the scope of Amazing. it like what he's trying to do is very very big and i i mean i kind of have to admire it at the end of the day so I love it. I cannot wait to watch. These are very different ends of the spectrum, but I, I will watch them both. Um, I just, I can't, I can't wait till I want to laugh again. Till I'm ready to laugh. I'll watch the, <laughs> the new Nathan Fielder when I'm ready to laugh. I know. It's, um, we're in a, it's a tough time right now in terms of w- what is going to entertain us. And I know everybody's really busy and there's so many fucking options right now. But, um, yeah, I think I think when it comes down to it, though, like you and I, I love talking about TV shows with you, especially because yeah. most of the I would say not most, probably all of the shows that you have referenced on the podcast are things I've never even heard of. And right. I am so I just admire you for that because I'm just like you're always mm-hmm. deep in those 
especially with the British shows. I'm like, you know what's on, what's good, and I don't. So I have to, I have to thank you for that. Oh, I'm th- thank you so much for saying so. I am always ready with a list. It is a useless skill that I have that I love television enough to always be watching it yeah. um, and be on it. And I don't think, have I even talked on the podcast about making TV and what I'm doing right now? No, I mean, you sort of have mentioned it, but let's talk about it. Bring I it. Can't, I can't even remember what I've said so far, but it's <laughs> just, it's very, I, I have, my current job is, it's a big deal job. And it's like a career changing job because mm-hmm. I am a showrunner, which I have been before, but for um, shows that were in development, so they never hit air. I am the showrunner for um, a show based on a book called The Other Black Girl, and it is already picked up for a full season, so it will be on Hulu next year. Um, and it's like one of the first flagship shows for Onyx, which is a new studio. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's part of the Disney family. <laughs> so No pressure or anything. No pressure. Um, but it's fucking incredible. Like, I have the greatest just the greatest producers and the nicest team. And I hired all these writers that I love. And it's like, it's truly remarkable that I get to do this every day. And it is also like, I now understand why every showrunner I've ever had was like a chain smoking maniac. (laughs) Boy. Like it is the most full day job I've ever, this is not a coasting job. You know, most jobs you're like, "Eh, I can coast. Like they won't really know if I don't do this until tomorrow. Oh, I do. No, I'm kidding. (laughs) Absolutely not. This is like the minute I wake up to the minute I go to bed, it's meetings, casting, this, that. Like, it's just always, there's so much that goes into making a TV show and I have to have my hands in all of it. It's not just writing. It's not just, I have to have my hands in all of it. Um, Yes. So it's very full on. But here's the exciting thing. Speaking about how wildly let's talk about TV. Two things that make me laugh every time it happens. And I think about you every time. (laughs) (laughs) Um, We are going to be filming in Atlanta. Yay, yay. Which means I get to hang out with Millie for a few months. Yes. Uh, Once I figure out what I'm going to do with my home situation. (laughs) 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 My grandma might also be in Atlanta. Uh, (laughs) Look, don't, don't fucking threaten me with a good time. Please. Please. You're like, I will buy those Depends. We will go out. <laughs> we will double up and go out. Um, but when we do casting for the show, like we have calls for casting and it's always like, um, you know, this person might be great, great for this role. And um, a couple of times now, and I cannot tell you how it's going to shake out. It's too early. I don't know yet. Um, but one of the first names that was brought up from one of the main characters Get the fuck out of here. <laughs> and I told them immediately, like, you might have to get HR involved <laughs> if you plan on casting him in the show. God damn. But I was like, am I being pranked? Am I on a Nathan Fielder show that Millie has orchestrated? <laughs> so anytime his name comes up, I'm just like, where's Millie? <laughs> <laughs> that just fucking explodes my brain i just can't imagine i think i'm a warlock and i don't know i'm like a very i'm a long-term warlock i'm playing the long game (laughs) the long game warlock (laughs) 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 
listen, you manifest that shit real early. You oh wrote a God. check to yourself or whatever it is, the secret. I threw it in uh, my then, own casket. Yes. <laughs> I wrote a check. I threw like Jim, what was it, Jim Carrey, like threw a million dollar check in his dad's <laughs> casket. I wrote the check. I threw it in my own bones. <laughs> shit. So, um, so will he be in Atlanta too? I'm like, now my brain is spitting. Right? Well, this, and this is the thing, like, if he's cast, yes. But also they're throw the names they throw around. I'm just like, I just have to laugh. I'm like, yeah, sure. Go. Yeah. Call. Why not? Let's have a meeting with. Sure. I, I see. <laughs> like, let's bring him to Atlanta. Why not? I got, I know a new chicken shop that he might like. Okay. Here's here's the deal. Me, you, grandma. We start at Magic City. <laughs> Every as you do. <sighs> then we fast forward to like the first meal of the night. Yes. We will which we we can have anywhere. There's so many good places to eat. We end up I don't know, running naked through a fucking field and <laughs> night swimming in a <laughs> in the woods in the middle of uh, deep fucking South Georgia. I don't know. Do you remember when McConaughey and Harrelson got like they were like playing the bongos naked and that was like a big news story? Yes. It'll be like that. But us. Oh, yeah. Shit. McConaughey fucking lived in a tent when he yeah. was in, in Atlanta. Um, and we can do that. I will fucking share a tent with. I got no problem with that, by the way. Like, I'll go down there. I will go down there. Listen, we can get one of these like $500 like REI tents with like multiple rooms. We can just go glamping. It's fine. Hell yeah. Also, grandma is absolutely tapping out after that first meal because she will get <laughs> diarrhea. She will be spending the rest of the night on the toilet while we are running around. Listen. I, and also, I also don't know if I can say any of We might have to cut this, Casey. Sorry, some of it. Sorry. Or beep names or something, but yeah. Yeah. Beep, beep, let's names. beep names. I oh, yeah, love beep that. Names. I love a the beep The drama name. Of, a, of a name beep really yes. fucking gets me. Yes. Well, let, me, let me say some more names we can beep. Um, <laughs> um, these are all people I have meetings with next week. Fuck! Let's talk about these movies. Let's let's get into these movies. I am really, really fucking excited this week. Listen, <laughs> this is going to be. This is one of those. It's one of those. One, one of those. I literally cannot wait to talk about your film. I've seen it before. And actually, I saw it fairly recently in the past couple of years. But for some reason, I have a whole new attitude towards it right now. <laughs> I am livid. <laughs> so my my original film that i picked for this theme was available when i picked it yeah and now is nowhere to be found on a streaming yeah. service and as With, you know i'm, I'm yep. a fan of physical media but we try to do streaming that's available yeah. in most places because we want you to watch the movies absolutely because when it comes down to it like i i mean i'm not gonna i'm not gonna admit to doing anything illegal why would i do that in a public Never. forum. Never. But I, I know people who know people. And usually, like, I can go, you know, into my little dark corners and find just about everything, mm -hmm. right? And, and as could pretty much anybody at this point. But 
it was actually really hard. Like your yeah. your original film, I was like, damn, this is a real deep cut. And I kind of don't know why, because it yeah. is so popular and it's talked about and it's based on a book, on a famous book. I just couldn't believe it. But um, it, is, it has been wiped from the internet. It has been scrubbed as if every single person in the cast committed some kind of crime against a child. Like it has just been scrubbed. <laughs> yeah, I don't I don't know actually what the deal is with it. Uh, I mean, it's likely a music thing, but who knows? Right. Um, but yeah, so then you had to make a real fast pivot, just like I had to when we did the the uh, uh, heartthrobs episode, the Tiger Beat heartthrobs episode, and <laughs> it changed the game considerably. Oh, guess what? Same thing happened. <laughs> when yeah, you yeah. had to change your movie and you were like, I hate every moment <laughs> of this. <laughs> but I love the pureness of it. that emotion is so yes. raw when that happens that it, it makes it kind of fun. It is kind of fun. Day. So let's talk a little bit about our theme this week. It's actually kind of simple. Yeah. Um, but I also want to know like a little bit more about it because I feel like it's your theme. I feel like you picked it this week. I think so. Okay. So what is the name of our theme? So our theme this week is the kids are not all right. All right. Yeah, they aren't actually all right at all. <laughs> and this is also like, uh, there's so many films that we could have potentially picked, obviously, because God love a fucking fucked up kids movie, right? Like, Absolutely. And it, it, there have been so many. And there's also like movies that are accidentally fucked up that involve kids, like weird kind of like animated, like, you know, Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory type of shits. But mm -hmm. I think we are more talking about movies about scary teenagers or like, you know, that era, that age group, maybe teenage yeah. to like early 20s. Absolutely. And it comes it comes from a place of my own just my own reckoning as I get older with looking at the things that I did and that I liked and I enjoyed when I was a teenager and how it was crucial to the fundamental part of my development, but also so terrifying to look at now. And looking at current teens and kids and feeling like, oh my God, we made the worst world for you. <laughs> like, yeah. how, are, how are you surviving any of this shit that we are all complicit in building for you? Yeah. And you know what's funny is that um, I had to catch myself because I'm very quick to be like, I think every generation does this. Like every person is like, when I was growing up, it was wild. I was wild. I had a job when I was six years old in the factory and all the kids now are so protected. I'm mm -hmm. sure that this has been happening forever. Right. And so I have to catch myself whenever I'm like, you know, I was, I remember when we did the episode with Leida, you know, yeah. a few, a few episodes back where we were talking about sort of being around the same age and being sort of like, um, on our own a lot, especially when it came to like watching TV and watching movies. And there was like no parental guidance when it came to like, you know, watching things on TV or HBO or whatever. And I was had to, I had to catch myself because there was a moment where I was thinking like, Oh, this is just such a, a, a Gen X thing. And it's not, I'm sure there are still people whose parents are too busy to like really be monitoring what they're watching on YouTube for sure. Oh, I mean, yeah. my my own sister and her husband have a hard time regulating what her sons are watching on fucking YouTube. It's a wild, <laughs> wild scenario. 
Um, oh, good. Well, also, but, did you read that? That uh, There was some article in the Times. Um, my friend Jessica Gross writes um, a parenting column for them, and she wrote about how a lot of iPad games were just like, she's like, her kids were just playing this weird iPad game, and it was basically like, help this character give birth. And like foot fetish, like all kinds of weird fucking games started popping up. <laughs> Yo, there was a game that one one of my youngest nephew was playing. I think it was not even on. It was on like a Amazon yeah. kid iPad. It was so it was like a kid's iPad, and it was basically like helping a pregnant mom like put lotion on her body and stuff. Yeah. And I was like, okay, <laughs> okay. I was like. No, listen, far be it for me to teach a fucking five-year-old how to put lotion on a grown woman. But I was like, it just seems I mean, a little off to me. Because it's a straight serial killer move. <laughs> like, it's like, let's teach this kid how to keep skin moist for no fucking reason at all. Like, you, there's no way you can monitor half of the shit the kids are exposed to now. Because that looks probably like an innocent game if you're just walking through the room. Yeah. But if you stop and look at that shit for five minutes, you're like, why is he putting cream on a fucking C-section scar? What is happening? <laughs> oh, yeah. And like and I've heard so many stories about like YouTube, like this kind of like weird phenomenon of like kids watching what they think is kids programming. But it's actually like snuff move, a snuff <laughs> movie or whatever. And I was like, OK, I guess it's a long way from like the dick on the Little Mermaid cover or whatever. It's like, wait. Like, maybe oh. we didn't have it rough. Maybe we had it easy. Like, count Daniel Tiger's hemorrhoids. <laughs> some... I can't believe I said that. <laughs> <That's> fucking terrible. <laughs> I want it on a mug. I want it on a mug. But it's that thing where, like, yeah, I have to catch myself from thinking that I like lived this like really lawless existence but yeah. i mean there are, kids are like growing up in their own ways but i also think that like a lot of i think both of our movies are 80s films yep right and i think my my film is more like these are teenage girls um and it was kind of early 80s so it was like and it deals a lot with like punk rock which is mm -hmm. like its own like little corner of the weird universe and your film it's really strange because I watched it. It's like I'd seen it in the 80s or maybe the early 90s. And then I mm -hmm. saw it again a few years ago. And then I saw it again for the podcast. And for some reason, they seem younger than the than the roles that they're playing in a weird yeah. way. Even though I know they were probably age appropriate, but they just seem younger. I don't know why. I know. I think it's because it's, again, it's like we got older. Because when I first saw my movie, I remember being a little kid watching my movie and being yeah. like, oh my God, being an adult is going to be so complicated and intense. <laughs> and I'm going to need some, like a core group of friends to get through this shit. Because look at how hard life is. Ugh. And now I'm like, who are these babies? Like, what are they complaining about? <laughs> and also, oh my God. I mean, this I'm going to sound like a complete fucking sociopath, but I'm like, do we really need that many friends? Like, well, how, how no. many fucking friends are in this crew? Oh, this is a fundamental issue I have with my movie. Like, and it's like from literally minute one of the movie where you see all of them walking out of a graduation. And I'm like, that's too many people. You only need to talk to one person at your graduation. Too much drama with these seven people that I'm constantly with. How is that even fucking possible in this day and age? Sincerely. Um, unless you're in a fucking commune or a cult. 
<laughs> you don't need seven friends all at the same time who are also friends. Also, I just spilled an entire thing of water on myself, so <laughs> this is like a wet sweatshirt contest. I, apo- I apologize. I'm jealous. Both you and Casey. <laughs> I'm jealous. If that water is even a, a fucking degree below 98, oh, I'm jealous. I'm so sorry. <laughs> Here's me flat, flash dancing you <laughs> right now <laughs> with this cold water. Oh, oh fuck. Well, listen, I uh, I can't wait to talk about these films. Um they're kind of way different, but I feel like they're all the all the kids in these films are fucked up. Period. Absolutely. And I can't wait to talk about it. So, well, you're going um, first. Oh yeah, I am going first. Yeah. <laughs> so my film for the theme, the kids are not all right, is a movie from 1982. It was written by Nancy Dowd, although the screenwriting credit went to Rob Morton. Mm. Directed by Lou Adler. And it's called, ladies and gentlemen, The Fabulous Stains. Corinne Burns, what are you going to do? My name is not Corinne Burns. Oh, what is it? It's third degree burn. I'm the lead singer and manager for The Stains. All right, so right off the bat, one sentence synopsis of ladies and gentlemen, The Fabulous Stains. A group of teenage girls start a punk rock band and slowly take over the music world. Fuck yeah. That's how it works. Now, I have a per- I personally have loved this movie for a really long time. I wrote about it for the book that I mm. wrote. So I'll try to just keep it brief because I know I can talk a long time about it. So this movie was directed by Lou Adler. And if you don't like know him sort of automatically from hearing his name, he was a really big music producer. He developed several famous artists such as the Mamas and the Papas and Carol King. And, um, and he also, you know, he kind of started directing and producing more films in the seventies and eighties. Like he produced the Rocky horror picture show. He directed up in smoke, Chi Chin Chong movie. So, you know, just know he's a music, mostly a music, music producer guy, but went into film at some point. I want to focus mostly on Nancy Dowd. Mm-hmm. Prior to this film, (laughs) she wrote a film that Danielle and I love very much and have referenced several times on this podcast without actually having done an episode on it. And that is the classic hockey film Slapshot starring Paul Newman. Okay. Beautiful. And and, and so offensive. (laughs) (laughs) Like perpetually offensive and fantastic. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> right. Um, beloved film. I know that we're not the only people that loved it. Um, and she actually won an Oscar for Coming Home. She wrote Coming Home, which is the Jane Fonda, John Voight movie. Mm-hmm. But here's the thing. She had had all this success in the 70s. And then in the late 70s, Nancy Dowd saw the Ramones in concert and decided she wants to write a movie about female punks. And keep in mind... This there had been pretty much little to no movies centered around girls in rock music, mm-hmm. let alone the punk scene. So, you know, this idea was pretty fresh. And Nancy Dowd brought in this woman named Carolyn Kuhn. She was a writer for Melody Maker, which was this British music magazine. I don't know if they're still around, but I think they, they folded like it's surprisingly 
later than you thought they would have folded. Okay, got it. They were definitely around when I was like in high school and college because it was like a big Britpop magazine. <laughs> I remember reading about Blur and Oasis in Melody Maker. But Carolyn Kuhn also at one point managed The Clash and she was brought on as a consultant on The Fabulous Danes because, you know, Nancy Dowd wanted to be really authentic about everything. And maybe relating to this as well, they cast a lot of real-life punk musicians in the film. So you have Steve Jones and Paul Cook from the Sex Pistols in the movie, Paul Simonon from The Clash, um, members of The Tubes, Black Randy and the Metro Squad, which they're like a legendary kind of L.A. avant-garde band. So there was like legit folks in this movie. And you have, so you have all this like actual punk pedigree, right? Mm -hmm. And then you have these three actresses who are playing the Stains, this female fronted punk band, okay? They were all actresses in their teens. You have Diane Lane, famous Hollywood actress, Diane Lane, who played the lead singer of the Stains. Her name is Corinne Third Degree Burns. Incredible. Incredible. Greatest, greatest name. She was 14 years old when they filmed this movie. She looks like such a baby, like truly. Such a baby. And like I said, a lot of people know Diane Lane and her like adult career. But then when you look at the stains, you're like, oh my God, she's so baby faced. Uh, she was only in one other movie before the Fabulous Danes, which I think is kind of incredible. Yeah. Additionally, you have famous Hollywood actress Laura Dern. She was also in her early teens when she played, I guess it's the cousin, her Kareen Burns' yeah. cousin. Uh, her name is Jessica McNeil. That's her character's name. And then you have Marin Cantor. She was the oldest of the three, but not by much. And she was, she plays Corinne's sister and she's like the guitarist from the band. And Marin Cantor was like in probably like a half dozen movies total. And she hasn't been in movies for a really long time. I think she just kind of yeah. retired from the business. But she was in this amazing movie called The Loveless that was directed by Catherine Bigelow and Monty Montgomery. It's like this biker, this crazy kind of like early 80s biker movie with Willem Dafoe. And it's really, it's real, it's really like over the top. It's just very like homoerotic and it's like kind of like an art piece, but she's in that film and she's not even much younger. I think maybe they were made around the same time even. So anyway, that's who's in the film. So you've got like legit teenage girls, a bunch of punk rock guys. And Christine and like, Lottie. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. And a few other adults, right? The, the, plot of the story kind of goes like this so um corinne and tracy our sisters they're 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 living in kind of like this economically barren sort of like northeastern town i feel like it's in pennsylvania or something like that i'm not entirely sure where it is but essentially corinne is like a real firecracker she's like fucking real hot to trot she is she hates where she's from her mother has just recently died and she's basically like working a fast food job and she's fired from her job. But basically like the beginning of the film is kind of set up like this. 
kind of news magazine show. And there's this reporter that's interviewing Corinne. And essentially it's like, it's kind of this, you know, like kind of this showcase about like, oh, the disaffected youth of America. And they're all just like, you know, going to hell in a handbasket. <laughs> and they somehow have footage of her firing, being fired from her fast food job. And basically, you know, they're sitting down with Corinne and she's agitated and she's, you know, basically aloof and mm-hmm. avoided. And she's like smoking cigarettes. And then she starts painting her eyelids with like this bright eye pencil. She starts like answering like a robot. Like she is just like, fuck y'all. Yes. <laughs> to- totally just like, I couldn't fucking be less interested in doing this. And, you know, the reporter's like, you're unemployed and you're cynical and you're broke. And she's just like, well, I got a punk rock band. And she introduces the rest of her band. And it's like, you know, obviously Tracy and Jessica. And they're just vacant, vacant stares, all three of these girls. And it's just sort of that thing where you're like, oh, yeah. Like, like they're... They're obviously like punk rock in that sense of like, it feels like you're watching, you know, the decline of Western civilization. You're just watching Mm -hmm. these girls sort of just being like, I fucking hate society and I'm just like not interested in, um, you know, playing nice or anything. So cut to Corinne, she goes to see a concert and it's this band called The Looters and there's this other band that's kind of like more of a, prog rock glam era band that's sort of trying to hang on to like the old ways or whatever they're called the metal corpses (laughs) (laughs) and it's like they're just like these two bands that couldn't be more different from each other the looters are kind of this like uk punk like a very sex pistols clash type of band and essentially she's she goes to see this concert and then the manager who is the this guy named law boy he is like hey do you want to just join the tour and he's never seen the stains play yeah at all <laughs> he's like i heard about you you want to join <laughs> yeah 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 so basically they just go on tour with like these two bands and they don't have any musical experience like they just get up there like it's just like a drummer not even a drummer there's no drummer guitar mm-hmm. player and like a bass player and then Corinne is just singing which is so it's so incredible like that series of scenes is so fundamental to me as a young person watching this film too because it's like that is the feeling that we so rarely see exhibited on screen about the passion of teen girls where they just they wanted to do something and they tried it. And we venerate that shit with teen boys all day long. Like uh-huh. they just picked, they didn't know how to play a lick of music and they just picked up their guitars and isn't it great? Now they're green day. Like we just yeah. do that all the fucking time and give boys that leeway. And I think girls end up growing up feeling like they have to be perfect at something right away to even try it. And so yeah. I just love seeing on screen just the fucking ballsiness of someone who's like, I have nothing to goddamn lose. Yeah. Like, what do I lose by staying in this town and working at this fucking fast food joint? Yeah. Why wouldn't I just get up on stage and have fun? <laughs> I love yeah. it. I love it too. And that that is like one of the core fundamental aspects of this film is just this idea that these girls have nothing to lose and they don't give a fuck anymore. And it's kind of this like 
like so much creative shit can just spring from that. And, but here's the thing about Corinne is that she's very fucking savvy. And she says to herself uh, effectively, I get that we don't have any musical experience, but I also believe in creating a look and a persona for ourselves, which includes, she starts, you know, basically dyeing her hair and it's in this like black and white pattern. Um, and then wears this kind of like, it seems very like proto kind of riot girl. It's like a sexy outfit with like a see-through blouse. And she's got very extreme makeup though. It's very like mm-hmm. Susie Sue or divine or something. And it's just kind of that juxtaposition of like, I'm wearing like sexy clothing, but I'm also like not, you're also going to have to deal with the fact that my hair is crazy and I've got crazy makeup. It's this thing where you're like, you know, mm-hmm. I'm, and I'm kind yelling. Of, yeah, I'm yelling. <laughs> and it's just this, it's very effective. And, um, and her, their looks in the film are the best. I mean, I just, you look at this and you're like, fast forward 10 years and that is Riot Girl, plain yes. and simple. But here's the thing, they're on stage and they're, and they're, you know, gaining some fans and they're getting some momentum, but like they also realize that touring fucking sucks and it's unglamorous. And it's sort of dangerous and they're hanging out with these like older guys and like one of the metal corpses like fucking overdoses in the bathroom Oof. and it's like, I mean, the girls are just sitting there going like, damn, that's fucking rough. And to me, it was like, as a viewer watching this, you're like, oh my God, these girls are on the road and they're watching a dude OD. I mean, it's like, you know, you think about that and you feel like you just want to protect him a little bit. Yeah. You know, but it's very ballsy of them to have done it, which I also think is remarkable, right? Completely, completely. And and to really put themselves in situations where they were... I mean, it's 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 very naive. There's a lot of naivete and like that I can take care of myself um, in situations that I'm unfamiliar with kind of way of thinking. But they also kind of could back it up. Like they kind of could take care of themselves. (laughs) So and they had each other. I think that was also like crucial to them going through these experiences like they had each other. Totally. And so Corinne, you know, they they as they're just kind of on the road performing she starts kind of giving these very passionate speeches, right? And she includes this phrase, we don't put out, which I feel like is, it seems like kind of a clarion call for, you know, women's independence and Mm self-reliance and, 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 and saying like, you see us dressed up in these like very skimpy outfits, but we we don't put out. We don't fucking put up with you. We don't put out. We're not going to fuck you. Like we're here to fucking rock. Right. Mm-hmm. And it's a very, like I said, it's a very effective statement in the film because soon enough, the band starts getting the attention of, you know, other television producers, primarily this, this female journalist who's hosting like a news magazine show herself. And so th- they start getting all these followers of these like young female fans and they're dressing like them. And they're, they start calling themselves the skunks because they're, they've got the black and white striped hair. Right. So they're getting all this attention. And so at the same time, there's like all these grown ups guys in the band. Um, the looters lead singer is played by the, British character actor Ray Winstone, who oh we have God. talked about before on this podcast, he is he is a a, a bag of nails 
Yes. Anim- an animated bag of nails. <laughs> yes. And he's very much like in that style, like a John Lydon, like kind of guy, right? And he's watching them sort of take the spotlight. You know, he's watching the stains kind of get this momentum and he's getting annoyed as shit with them. While at the same time, he kind of begins this like brief fling with Corinne. And, but it ends very quickly once Corinne figures out that Billy has, like, secretly asked Lawboy to hire another band to replace the Stains, right? So, in response, the Stains start covering one of the looter songs in their set, which is, it's a fucking badass move. <laughs> like, it's so great! It's, it's so that, great. Yeah, Join the Professionals, I think that's the song. I, I don't know what it's actually yeah. called, but... um. It enrages Billy. It enrages him. And he's, well, he's pissed, like, from the jump because he he feels like they are not getting the acclaim that they deserve. Yeah. And he's pissed that, like, you're, like we're opening for these fucking old men and, like, just, so it's, he's he's singing about the lack of wanting to join the the establishment, but also very much wanting to be the established, the establishment version of, like, he wants their band to be, like, famous and well-known. Yeah. So so basically from here, I I there's a part of the end where I have to spoil it because I have to it, it's it's part of the history of the film, which is very interesting. But just know that beyond this point with Billy, like things start changing on the tour that basically he starts Billy starts kind of starting his own rants at the beginning of their show about authenticity and stuff. And then a lot of stuff kind of happens amongst like the skunks and the stains. And so a lot of stuff kind of goes into motion by this time. But I will say this, Nancy Dow, the screenwriter of the film and Lou Adler, the director, they clashed over the ending of the film. And Nancy Dowd actually left the film and had her name removed, which is why the official screenwriter for the film is listed as Rob Morton. It's a fake name. Damn. Yeah. And the, there's a lot of interesting history to this film because it was shelved for... It, it basically sat untouched for two years. Damn. Because there was this fight about the ending of the film. And essentially what happened was Dowd wanted the end of the movie to be like the Stains start touring England and kind of move on with their like punk careers overseas mm-hmm. and Lou Adler after a couple of years decides that he finally wants to give it an ending. And then he made the ending to where the stains are kind of like this more polished MTV version mm-hmm. where they're on, you know, making videos and they seem to have some kind of commercial success. Right. And that is the ending of the film as it is right now. But it's, it's interesting because it really wasn't, Nancy Dowd's vision yeah. at the end of the day. And I wish we got to see that vision because I think that's more, It's it was more unique for the time. Yeah. It was more in line of the direction they were heading all throughout the film. Yeah. And I feel like it was, it's not necessarily a cop-out, but it's kind of like the way that it was presented that like they were just fine with being this pop version of themselves. Yeah. <laughs> and like it just, it just did not, really match the like the narrative of the the movie didn't really take us to that place i think 
Yeah, and it's also kind of like they shot it like two years or something after they had shot the film. So Diane Lane, the actress herself, looks different and stuff. So Mm -hmm. it's like it feels very tacked on. And, you know, yeah, I totally agree with you. It would have been incredible to see that other version, but obviously they didn't film it, right? Um, I will say this. If you can track this down, this is on the Internet somewhere, but in the late 90s, the late director Sarah Jacobson, who was herself a female filmmaker, uh, died young, tragically, um, but she made this documentary short called The Fabulous Danes Behind the Movie. And it's definitely out there on the internet to watch. Um, But she interviews Nancy Down. And she talks about she experienced some sexual harassment on the set of the film and explains sort of why she left the production the way she did. And then just also like seeing the reaction of the film now because it's kind of got this new it kind of got this cult following mm-hmm. because it was this thing where you know they had waited a few years to to make an ending it wasn't the ending that the screenwriter wanted and it was shelved by the studio because it was like a commercial it was just a flop right and what ended up happening through the power of like late night TV, like night flight and stuff that was happening in like the late eighties, early nineties. And, and also rep screenings at like, you know, places like the new Beverly, like places that we've talked about on the podcast, but also in like all these other cities, this, it kind of became like a cult film. Mm -hmm. And so, in a in a way that in that documentary short, Nancy Dow talks about sort of the new life that happened after it kind of got rediscovered. Um, Awesome. But that also, this movie became like very influential for a lot of these like female musicians in the 90s. And it became this big um, Riot Girl film. I mean, a lot of like women who were making music in the 90s and sort of were in those punk worlds had talked about the Fabulous Danes being an influence on them. So I think that's like super cool. Absolutely. And it, it, and like you said earlier, like it kind of explains why. Or how so much of the look of the film survived and was altered and kind of became the the foundation of Riot Girl and, you know, more modern punk. And like it's it's like something that you can pay homage to and acknowledge the cult the cultiness of the film while also making something new and cool and interesting. And like when when you hear Corinne shouting, you know, like we don't put out. It just reminds me of like Kathleen Hanna, Girls to the Front. And like yep. there's just so many little ways that the film survived before it was even like a popular film again. Yeah. And I really dig that. I do too. And I mean, somebody, I know so many cool people who love this film. And, you know, there's so many uh, people that have championed Nancy Dowd as the screenwriter and, like, the women who were involved. And it's crazy because you think about, I don't know this now, I don't want to keep comparing this movie to something that would happen now in a way because, again, I don't want to, like, I know, I don't want to be that, like, stuck in my generational fucking purist type. But, like, you know, to have these young girls be on a movie set like this with these punk rock guys, these actual fucking punk rock guys, you know? And just the, also just like the message of the movie being like, here are these young girls who have formed a band who have, you know, decided to like, really like 
give their fucking middle finger to like their hometown and the shit that they put up with to like kind of live their own lives. I mean, I think it's incredible. Like, I don't know. I, I, it made me miss Riot Girl. It made me miss yes. that sort of like that instinct for young women to like fucking play punk rock. Like instead of like whatever, I don't know. I don't want, again, I don't want to keep judging younger people for what they do, but it, it made me miss that time where it was like, I miss fucking girls starting bands and fucking like yeah. yelling at people and like being confrontational and having that like punk energy. Oh, I just, it, I miss it so much. And here's the thing though, that kind of thing comes in waves and a lot of it is dictated by how women are being treated in current society. Yeah. And I think that, you know, when this movie came out, like you said, it's kind of on the, the heels of second wave feminism, but you know, equal rights and, and, and bodily rights and bodily autonomy was still very much the order of the day. In the 90s, when you had Riot Girls, same thing. It was like, you know, fighting for abortion rights, fighting for health care. Like, just, I think that that's, I think that there is a, a new wave of punk coming. And I think that in a lot of ways, it's, you know, you see a lot of people who still play that style. Um, like, the Linda Lindas are great, and like a whole yes. bunch of like bands who play that style of music well. I think the anger and the lack of give a shit is coming back. I, I, we will see it again because of what is happening in America specifically, but all over the world to women's rights being dismantled. And yeah. I think that the, the instinct to yell at and fight back is going to come back in music as well. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I hope so. And, and gotta say, love, love this film. Uh, I know it had like some bumps in the road, but I think Nancy Dowd is such a great screenwriter. Ugh. And, you know, I feel like Laura Dern and Diane Lane and Moran Cantor are like the coolest. I'm like, damn, they were in the fucking, they I were the fabulous know. states. I'm like, damn, we stand legends. <laughs> <laughs> and then went on to still have like unbelievable careers in every possible way. Totally, 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 totally. So anyway, that's a good that, pick. Such thank you thing. so much. I'm so, thank you for letting me pontificate on it because I, I love it too much. But um, oh, anytime. I love listening to you talk about movies you love. <laughs> yes, that's why we have this pod. Well, let's talk about your film now, shall we? Okay, so I just said we have this pod to talk about films we love, but that is not always the fucking case. <laughs> and this goddamn film is <laughs> Public Enemy Number One. <laughs> Again, not my first pick. So my movie for our theme of The Kids Are Not Alright was released in 1985. It was directed by Joel Schumacher. And the screenplay is by Joel Schumacher and Carl Kurlander. And it is St. Elmo's Fire. I can't remember who met who first or who fell in love with who first. All I can remember is the seven of us always together. Strap the fuck in. So I believe there was an episode where Millie already told us about Joel Schumacher. Uh huh. <laughs> so I will not be going too deep on Joel Schumacher. Uh, we'll put it maybe in the episode notes, which episode you can listen to if you would like to deep dive on him. But I will say this movie is very Schumacher-esque in how fucking angry it made me. <laughs> every choice made me angrier than the next <laughs> so oh my, my one sentence synopsis of St. Elmo's Fire is 
Seven recent Georgetown graduates flex the kind of privilege that will be the downfall of the nation in a mere 30 years while pretending that they have real problems. Oh my God. You read them to filth. (laughs) (laughs) Thank God. And this is one of those cases where the the cast is unfuckwithable in terms of like 80s royalty. Yes. We have Demi Moore playing Jules, Andrew McCarthy playing Kevin, Judd Nelson and his nostrils playing Alec, <laughs> Mayor Winningham playing Wendy, <laughs> Rob Lowe playing Billy, Emilio Estevez playing Kirby, and Ali Sheedy playing Leslie, and honorable mention, Anna Maria Horsford, who was who was Thelma in Amen, also shows up as not only the only Black person in the film, but, of course, because she's the only Black person in the film, she's a sex worker. Um, right. So she's goddamn hilarious in this film, in this movie. So um, good. From Amen. Thank you for saying Amen, because that's a, a only, like, that was, like, my first and only thought. I oh, was like, yeah. Like, you do not have to push me to bring up a Sherman Helmsley. <laughs> Thank you. Obsessed with Amen, but you continue. You never have to push me to bring up a Sherman Hel- Helmsley joint. Um, so these assholes all hang out at a bar called St. Elmo's. Like, they don't have real responsibilities. <laughs> and I'm going to describe each character before I describe some of the scenes in the film as a way to just really center you in what I'm talking about and who I'm talking about. Because this movie is all over the place. <laughs> it really? suffers from a little like, thing I like to call too much story. <laughs> all over the place. Here's here's how the kids are not all right. I'm going to do I'm going to do both a here's how they're not all right and here is their lowest moment. Okay? Perfect. So, Jules, the Demi Moore character. Jules is not all right because she is a cokehead who lives on credit. Her mouth writes checks that her ass cannot cash. She's fucking her boss in an effort to keep her job. And she lives in a Pepto pink apartment with a gigantic Billy Idol mural on the wall, including a neon earring. Okay. And her lowest moment is when she tries to freeze herself to death rather than face her problems. That's Jules. Okay. So, first of all, I don't even know what to say about Jules because she is just like, She's so messy. That's yeah. what they would call her. She's so messy, Jules. She is so. She's the kind of person who will call you at three o'clock in the morning and be like, "Can you please come get me? I'm doing a bunch of coke with a bunch of guys, and I think I heard them say the word gangbang." And then you get there, and she's like, "What's up?" <laughs> no. And they're watching MTV. And, and she kind of is like incessantly, like bad mouthing her stepmother who is in a coma. Yes. And she's, like, complaining about having to, like, possibly pay for her funeral costs. And we don't know. Maybe her stepmother is, like, the stepfather, the Terry Mm O'Quinn film. Who knows? And also, nobody is putting you as their next of kin if they're an asshole. Like, no one's doing that as a joke. Like, I'm at the end of my life and I need some help. Ha ha, let me get this asshole who I don't like very much. Like, she clearly, I think, the stepmother was probably a better person than Jules painted her out to be. Yeah, it, it was so hard to tell. I think that's probably why this movie is so uneven. Is that there's so many big questions, but her her character in particular, I think, is is seen more or less as like the messy one, yep. right? Absolutely. And, 
Anyway, I know you're about to reveal all the other characters in the film, but oh. she is who I wanted to talk about. Yeah, let's talk about Mess for sure, because we got Kevin coming up next. Oof. And Kevin is not all right because he's he's a fledgling writer who's upset with where his career is. Um, he's in love with his friend Leslie. He has a coffin for a coffee table. And <laughs> he constantly talks very cynically about love. Like somebody will be like, oh, the grass is green. And he's like, marriage is a sham. Like he's just constantly just like on one about how much love sucks. His lowest moment is that he fucks on that coffee table, which does not even happen in Interview with the Vampire. (laughs) (laughs) For shame. A movie laden with coffins and nobody's fucking (laughs) on them. But Kevin finds a way And he also dresses like Carmen Sandiego for some reason at the end of the movie when he takes Billy to the bus. So Billy can go (laughs) to New York City. Like, he's just, he is so scattered. He's just so all over the place. Kevin is infuriating to me because he's one of these guys who's, like, trying to be cool. And he's obsessed with a terrible director. And he, like, he's, I don't know, he's, like, singing Aretha Franklin. Like, he's just the most sus white dude. Absolutely fucking sus right, dude. Just like uh neurotic chain smoking writer um who's like tortured. And Ugh. I'm like, oh my god. He owns bongos. And it's sad because I fucking loved Andrew McCarthy. Oh. Like out of all the brat pack guys, I was like, he's my guy. And uh Of course he was, because he's the sensitive weirdo. Yes, but I hated him in Santa <laughs> Almost Fire. I hated him in this Well, movie. also, he doesn't have a real story aside from, like, I love this lady who's in yes. a relationship with one of my other friends. Exactly. Like, that's exactly. his story. It's like, I don't have sex because I'm in love with someone. And I'm like, okay, fine. <laughs> I fucking deal with your shit. Speaking of, we've got Alec. Mm. Alec is not all right because he's a, he's a budding Republican who thinks marriage will stop him from cheating on Leslie. Oh, boy. His lowest moments are when he demands that he keeps a Billy Joel, all his Billy Joel records during a breakup. Gross. Or possibly proposing to Leslie and then two minutes later kicking her out of their apartment during the middle of a party. Like, those are low moments. Also, he has like a Tower Records wall of glass cubes for a bedroom wall. Like, it's just, it ain't right. He ain't right. There's, and they have like a huge Nike fucking mural on their apartment wall. I mean, it's like the epitome of like 80s yuppie shit, right? Oh my God. It's so distractingly bad. So Alec ain't all right. Um, Wendy, our Mayor Winningham character, oh is God. not all right because she's in love with a fuck boy and she still lives with and is funded by her parents who are greeting card store magnates. Yeah, one of whom is Martin Balsam, by yeah. the way. Craggy hot royalty. Craggy hot royalty Martin Balsam. And her lowest moment, there are too many to count. This bitch lives in the gutter in this movie. She is always in the, always down in the dumps. There are too many to count. Every moment is a low moment for Wendy. Yo, they purposely made like this is the thing about oh my god it's like i'm gonna say justice for wendy but i just i'm going to because yes they purposely i think dressed her in like these terrible like duluth trading company fucking ll bean jumper things and i'm like y'all are making her look terrible exactly like, she, she hangs out with these she hangs out with jewels mm-hmm. and she's wearing like cow jumpers from 
you know, fucking Upper Peninsula shit. I'm like, yes. what is going on here? And they also make her make her her earnestness seem like a defect. Like she she works in an yes. office for, you know, she helps a lot of people who are on welfare and she like works at a soup kitchen and her friends are constantly like making fun of her for it. Yes. Fucking ghouls. Yes. Ghouls. F- fucking ghouls. And it's that thing where, again, we're, we've talked about this in prior episodes. It's like, take a, a beautiful Hollywood actress and make her frumpy by, yep. like, giving her fucking linebacker shoulder pads <laughs> and shit and, like, making her wear, like, ugly Kathy Bates and misery clothes. And I'm like, come on. Give her, like, a fucking Laura Ingalls gunny sacks dress and some dusty <laughs> boots, even though she's in the middle of a city. Some fucking prairie boots and like some fucking scrunchy socks. God damn. And she's adorable. Mayor Winningham is so adorable and always has been. And they did her so dirty in this movie. They did. And all right, I mean, we're going to get back to, to some Wendy shit because we got to talk about another character. But we've got Kirby, <laughs> who is played by Emilio Estevez. <sighs> Kirby is... um. His not all rightness is that he is a straight up stalker. Yes. And somehow they try to make this like the sweetest storyline in the movie. Mm-mm. He is a straight up stalker, including but not limited to some of his lowest moments, driving to a ski lodge in a convertible, switching from law to medicine in order to stalk harder throwing a party at his new boss's house for a woman who didn't even say she was coming. Yeah. And wearing suspenders and a bow tie, which I know was his, his uniform at work, but it just looked so goofy and bad. <laughs> I can't tell you. I mean, there, there is, there are several points of this movie that do not translate well. Yes. In a, mo- in the modern world, but damn, this guy is, I don't know if they were trying to pull some like John Cusack and say anything shit, but it was, bone chilling <laughs> my How stomach dropped my stomach yes. dropped every time he was on screen and he has never looked more like his dad like he looked so yeah. cute like he's never looked more like martin sheen absolute creep factor of 45 like just off the chains creep factor this is one when, when i was watching it I, rem, I was like you know those um those youtube videos where people cut like the shining to look like a rom-com Yes. I wish someone would cut this trailer to look like a fucking horror. Oh my god. It like I actually thought when when he goes up to the winter house to see Andy McDowell and her boy like you know basically trying to confront Andy McDowell finally and she's with her fucking boyfriend or husband. I actually thought misery was going to happen. Absolutely. Like I was like oh he's going to trap these people in the winter house and cu- cut off one of their feet or whatever <laughs> like where it is a little fucking necklace. Holy shit. Yeah, it was, it was so scary. Terrifying. And it, yeah, he had so many low moments. And I cannot believe that his not all rightness was just like, uh, he's a stalker. Um, <laughs> we've got Leslie, our Ali Sheedy character. And Leslie's not all right because she's afraid to say the word feminist, but she also doesn't want to get married until her career is in full swing. Yes. And I'm like, just say it, dude. Just say it. Say you might not ever want to get married. Or you at least yes. don't want to get married right now. Like, she does keep saying it to her credit, but, like, she's saying it to a fucking chump. Um, right. Her lowest moments, two crucial ones. One, she dresses like Mary Todd Lincoln. Like, I don't know who the fuck was the costumer for this goddamn movie. I mean, this Joel is- Schumacher used to do costumes, so I'm surprised that it went so badly for Oh, my him God. This bitch this- is in straight-up doilies in half the fucking movie. 
<laughs> and her other low moment is saying during a breakup, I'm taking Thriller and Mahler's Ninth. Like those are her choices of records as she's breaking up with Alec. You know, I have to be honest with you. During that whole scene where she, they were like yelling about the record collection, I hated my generation. Like I was like, <laughs> oh my God, I hate Gen X, like for this bullshit of like the fucking like, well, you don't get, I, I'm the stranger by Billy Joel because that means something. And I'm like, fuck our people. Like, who gives a goddamn fuck about these records? And yet we have a 10 minute scene yes. where these two people got to dish it out like this. And I'm like, I hate and people. And the scene my should generation. have been you like you Alec have been fucking people nonstop for the entirety of our relationship. And you just got mad because I fucked one other person. Yeah. Can oh, we get some justice? <laughs> oh my God. Yeah. That whole scene. I, I'm with you. It was infuriating. And I'm like, oh, we God. need to focus. Like, Gen X, come on. Let's focus yes. up. We need to focus. <laughs> Fucking hell. And then, speaking of focus, mm. we got Billy. Wow. Now, Billy's not all right because he wears a saxophone like a necklace. <laughs> he plays said saxophone. Wow. He says things like, this face seats five as a pickup line. Oh, my God. The worst. And he is constantly cheating, even though he is married with a kid. Plus, his he exists to take advantage of Wendy. Like, she's paying his rent. She's fucking giving him money, giving him a ride. He crashes her car. He gets, you know, mm. he gets drunk and crashes her car. And she's like, it's okay. My dad will take care of it. Like, he is just taking advantage of his, his, his friends, quote unquote, the friends in his life, exist for him to take advantage of them. Yep. And his exactly. his low mo his lowest moments, we genuinely do not have enough time. He is another one who lives in the gutter in this movie. <laughs> yeah, he's uh, he's messy too. He's very messy. He is a messy um, bitch. Such a fuck boy. What, I I have like alter like every time I watch this movie. I, I, I alternate between like thinking Rob Lowe because I never liked Rob Lowe in the, in this era. Like he was not my favorite male Brad Packer. Come mm -hmm. on, it was Andrew McCarthy. There are times in this movie where I'm like, he's so gross. Other times in this movie, I'm like, I can see it. I can see it. <laughs> like, my, might I be his mayor Winningham, just like giving him two hundred dollars all the time to be like, oh here's your rent money. You're so attractive. I never you're, get... you're aimless and a fuckboy, but I can't help but give you money. I don't know. There was a moment where I was like, okay, I see it. But see, this is where we go to joint therapy. And I'm like, yes. Millie's therapist, we need to talk. I'm afraid my girl's going to backslide. <laughs> Today, she... she decided that she thought Rob Lowe from St. Elmo's Fire was hot. And we don't know why she keeps doing this. And we can't have that, especially after that Halloween uh, sax party. Oh, <laughs> I cannot with this bit. That song, they were trying so hard to have a Lost Boys moment that was never going to come. Never. Never going to come. It was so, it made me so mad that he kept playing that song. He kept playing it. I'm like, we need two seconds of this. That's all we need. Two seconds. He plays saxophone. We know this already because he wears it like a fucking necklace. He does not have a case for it. He gets out of a car in the middle of the day when they are clothes shopping, wearing his saxophone. 
It was like illegal in the 80s to put it in a fucking case. So we know he plays it. We don't need this song to go on for 80 minutes. Like it is horrifying. Hor- horrifying. And like even Tim Capello knows when to quit. Like he knows when to fucking the solo has gone on too long. Thank you. People are just feeling sorry for you. Fucking Billy is just up there sweating on people. Genuinely, sh- oh, this this is an 80s move that I do not miss. And I've not been to uh-huh. a concert in a long time. So I don't know if like your panic, panic at the discos or whatever are doing this. But he like <laughs> leans into the crowd and shakes his sweaty head all over a fan, quote unquote. Ugh. I will arrest you, my a citizen's arrest. Oh, yeah. If you drop yeah. your sweat on me. Oh yeah, I'm, I'm literally, I'm literally like taking you to the FBI. Oh like, my god, get away from me! And you know me, like I'm fuck the police all the way. I will arrest you. Yeah, and here's here's the thing about Billy too that is so fucked up is that he has a wife and child. Yes, like a new baby. Like when they show his family, you're like that baby is fresh out of the oven. That baby is brand fucking new, and absolutely <laughs> still needs like you in their life. And also, how did you get married and have a baby when you just graduated college? Bro, they show the baby's face. Yeah. I'm like, (laughs) they show the baby. And I'm like, you don't even, not even in this cinematic moment, do you feel the weight of the responsibility (laughs) of this? Like, you're like, they show the baby's face smiling at you. And he's still like, yeah, still don't fucking want want that baby. I hope my my wife gets married to her old high school boyfriend so I don't have to fucking deal with it. He even says, at one point he says like, I'm thinking of being one of those on the weekend dads. And I'm like, oh, you mean a fucking deadbeat? Like, he's absolutely not hanging out. I'm not saying that weekend parents are deadbeats. I'm saying he specifically would never show up. Like, it is never going to happen. He's going to be gone or fully present because he is unemployed and living in that house. And that kid will be seeing him every day. There is no in between for Billy. Rough. And I mean, it's like he can't even pay his own rent. Oh, my God. So it's like he's not going to pay child support. Let's get serious. He can't keep a job. How can he pay? He's not even paying for his own life. Did you not feel sorry for that fucking korean guy that they kept fucking over throughout the film mr kim here's how i feel about mr kim because mr kim first employed billy and billy straight up was like i'm gonna fuck your like limousine driver whoever that was, or your girlfriend or whatever he just straight up took that job and was like he's out of town i'm taking over this life fool me once mr kim <laughs> then hires kirby another one of alex's friends right after he hires billy and Fucking Kirby throws the party at his house. Fool me twice, dude. Mr. Kim, either stay your ass at home and stop being a fucking diplomat. Go to a goddamn service and get a real person to help you with this job. Don't listen to Alec anymore. But like, stop listening to this fucking dude. He's giving you all his dirtbag leftover friends. There are so many times. You're absolutely right. There are so many times in this film where I think antics were supposed to have been funny like Mm -hmm. this like there was a lot of like parts of the plot that were were supposed to communicate aren't these aren't these kids just like a fucking riot like they've known each other for so long they went to college together they have like a fucking college chant that they do when they hang out they have a laugh a certain laugh they have a laugh it's like like they're all so different there's like a messy one there's like a rock and roll one there's a there's a preppy one 
And like when they do things that are fucked up, we're all supposed to be like, ain't it great to know them? I was like, this was one of the moments where I was yep. like, yo, you fucking trashed this guy's house like at least two times. <laughs> <laughs> like to completion, to completion. <laughs> they were like, oh, is this a Ming boss? Let's break that. Billy didn't get that one. We will take care of it. It was like straight up like a pizza on a on a record player kind of trashed. Like, yeah, it was trash. And to say nothing of the fa- of the scene where they all have to like save Jules from her like oh. I'm trying to freeze myself situation, and they have to go and get like a fucking blowtorch to take off metal bars, and they're like, Oh, we are going to talk this about is that. This is what we got to do. And I'm like, God damn, what the fuck? We are going to talk about that scene because this when Jules has her breakdown, essentially. She has been borrowing against her paycheck, so she's not getting paid at work anymore because they're like, you owe us two months worth of money. So, like, you're not right. getting paid. Her, she's running up her credit. She has the most gigantic jars of Coke I've ever seen. They're like test tubes. They're huge. <laughs> I th- literally thought that was, like, night cream. Yeah. That's not, like, the, the thing, the jar was so big, I was like, oh, that's her night cream. I'm like, no, that's not her cocaine. That's, that's all of her cocaine. All of her cocaine. It looks like that, those tubes of glitter that you get at school. Yes. It's huge. So like she's already and and she's using her credit card. She's living like life's a party, you know, until it's not. And everything catches up with her. Like she's she's um, Leslie has moved in with her because she broke up with Alex and Alec. And so she knows that she's in there and she's barricaded the door because someone came and took all of her furniture and all of her shit and she got fired from her job three weeks ago and didn't tell anybody so she's sitting in the and this is like truly an iconic shot like she's sitting in the middle of the floor of this pepto-bismol apartment with these long billowing curtains flowing in and right behind her is a gigantic porcelain clown head like gigantic. There was something about the 80s where they were pushing these fucking porcelain clown heads so hard. These masks. And people were going in. They were go it was like little spoons and clown masks. They were like we're going to get some fucking money out of these people. So she's sitting on the floor <laughs> and she's got her her t-shirt pulled over her knees and she's just like rocking back and forth and her hair's all crimped and her friends they try to knock on the door, that ain't working. They go to the fire escape. Alec, of course, threatens Kevin because he's like, you fucking my lady. And Kevin's like, uh, she's not really your lady. Why don't you pull me up? And then Billy shows up in a fucking Sanford and Son truck because he's working at the gas station down the street now. Like, we should be throwing Billy a parade because he finally kept a job for a week. But he pulls up in this fucking, like, Sanford and Son fucking truck with a blowtorch. And that's how they're going to get in this apartment. And then Jules just gets up and like unlocks the door and somebody finally busts in and it's Billy. And Billy has the worst. Ed- like He's the last person that should be busting into this apartment. <laughs> he's already let her down severely once before. By like, she's like, I have to tell you something serious. And he like took her car keys and put them in his pants. Like he's that yeah. dude. Tried to sexually assault her. Yeah. And now is giving her, talking her off the ledge, basically, giving her advice. Meanwhile, these curtains, it looks like a PM Dawn video behind them. (laughs) These curtains are flowing 
this like flowing fabric that is coming from like these 20 foot ceilings in her apartment. <laughs> like what the fuck is going on with this scene, dude? Not a PM Dawn video. It's true. Like, so he's in there and he's like, you're making it all up. Nothing's real. And I'm like, can you not say that to the person having a mental breakdown right now? And her plan is to freeze herself to death. And then he does that thing where he takes a fucking lighter and a can of hairspray and is like, see, it's like St. Elmo's fire. You think you see lightning Lightning in the cloud makes you think, think it's like some kind of light, like real light, but it's all fake. And I'm like, this is the worst connection to a movie title I've ever seen someone try to force. Okay. I'm going to be 115% honest with you right now. Every single fucking time I've seen this movie... I am pissed off that there was not an actual fire. Thank you. Like, I forget that there's no fire. Yep. And then I'm like, there wasn't a fucking fire in this movie. The St. Elmo's bar didn't catch on fire. I don't know why every time I thought this movie is about Billy setting a fire to the St. Elmo's bar. It should that's have been. what I thought this movie was about, and it never happens, and I get pissed off every time. Because that's what it should have been. That's the natural progression of this fucked up friends group, is one of you is an arsonist. <laughs> and it would have made more sense if, in terms of trying to fix her life if Jules lit the building on fire. So instead, we get this like weird shit where the movie is named for this phenomenon that Billy just randomly utters yeah and it doesn't even occur in the movie you don't even see saint elmo's fire in the movie they're never like near a shore like looking at the clouds and like oh there it is it's never in the movie <laughs> it's never there and it's 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 just it is so infuriating you you recently called zardoz an unwatchable masterpiece i <laughs> We'll call this movie a trashter piece. Yes. You should only watch this if you want to have an origin story for modern American greed and excess. And if you just want to be <laughs> mad, if you just want to get angry, like you need like a pump up song and movie form. It is this. One hundred percent. Nothing is on fire. This is the kind of movie where like it should have been a series of vignettes and they all burned up at the end of their vignette. Like Kevin fucked on a coffin, burnt to a crisp. <laughs> And you know what the weird thing is too, though, is that if, you know, this is this is gonna be deep. Follow me, people. The fucking video. So there's the the theme. One of the theme songs for the film is this song called "Man in Motion." Oh my god! So it's called the, the actual song is called "Saint Elmo's Fire," in parentheses, "Man in Motion." It plays several times during the film. Okay, so in the video for that song, they use like the actual actors from the film are in the video and i swear to god there's a fire in the video where i think that they're like it's it's almost like the video was like a unintentional sequel to the film oh where god. the thing that we wanted to happen meaning that there was a fire in the saint elmo's bar actually happened right because someone someone probably gave that note they watched the movie and they were like we wish there was a fire they're like we'll put one in the video you're cool also there was <laughs> the world's tiniest fire in the movie i don't know if you, if you caught it when <laughs> billy goes back to his frat house because that's how fucking pathetic he is 
He goes back to his frat house and like play football with the boys and like get some glory back. There is a <laughs> tiny pile of leaves on fire behind him. <laughs> the tiniest pile of leaves. And I'm like, again, this should have been a series of, vin- of vignettes. That leaf yes. pile should have caught the wind and hit a tree and then a branch lit on fire that fell on Billy and he's burned to a crisp. <laughs> it could have been a much funnier movie. Could have been. And they just went the distance with some fire. <laughs> and it's infuriating because this is an incredible cast, not just for the time, but in general. Like, this is yeah. an incredible cast of people. Both Emilio Estevez and Andrew McCarthy have gone on to be incredible directors in their own right. Um, mm-hmm. Demi Moore has had a stunning career. Ali Sheedy, cool as fuck, has made some incredibly cool indie movies and art house movies. Like, it is an inc- Mayor Winningham, untouchable, as we know, Come always on. perpetual, adorable, love her to bits. Like, it is such a fucking good cast that is wasted. And this movie that does not elicit any emotion from me but anger. I do not feel for any of these people at any point. Like, I don't care about them. Yeah, it. I, w- I was trying to divorce my own thoughts about having, like, a crew, a tight crew of of friends that you know that were just like, I don't. I've always been an independent contractor. I think we've talked about this. I like to me. I was already like, this is sus because they're they're doing the friends thing mm-hmm. where they're like, you know, every person is quirky in their own weird way and everybody dates each other. It's like I can't. Oh, I'm like, no, I don't like this already. Also, people who are obsessed with their college. Oh I'm my just god, like, that is not me. Never me. Never me. Absolutely. Like, thank you. Job less for the goddamn degree. Goodbye. (laughs) Goodbye for fucking. I could become president and never go back to my college. I know. And I loved it. (laughs) I had a great time at both places I went. And I'm like, if anyone asks, like, yeah, I'll go give a talk or whatever. It would, I would never just voluntarily go. There is a scene where Demi Moore, Jules, Demi Moore's character, drives a Jeep, like an open top Jeep. And mm-hmm. um, there's a scene where they're driving and like some of the guys hop in and they're sitting on each other's laps and it looks like a Barbie and the Rockers commercial. <laughs> and I'm like, they Is that look part like- Zoolander? Yes. Where, like all the models are like driving around. Yes. And I'm like, you are teenagers. This, ha- this is like a-, a scene from Bring It On. Like they are babies. Yeah. But it's- they're also drunk driving and doing massive piles of coke. Yeah, it was very, it's very strange. But but again, now looking from it from way, way far in the future, uh, it drove me crazy. And also, I don't know about you, but I have to say for the record, you know the love theme from St. Elmo's Fire, that like oh song, God. that instrumental? I always get so much anxiety whenever I hear that song. <laughs> again, therapist? <laughs> Millie listens to a love song and gets anxiety. Can we dive it's, deep on this? I don't know why. And every time I, because they used to play it on the fucking radio yes. when I was a kid. And it made me feel nervous. Well, look, we all wished for fire that didn't come. We wished for a St. <laughs> Elmo's fire that wasn't shown. And I am absolutely livid that I had to choose this instead of my film because my film is no longer streaming. But I'm thank you, thankful that you pivoted so quickly. And oh I, I hope... I hope that they just, maybe we can send a note to someone. I, I just want them to keep our movies on for long enough for us to record the episode and for people to watch it. Because every time we have to pivot, it's like, well, I hated that shit. 
it's miserable. At the same time, I secretly love it because it it is our actual honest. Like, there's no preparation. We're just like, we're riffing on this. And a lot of times it's not what we planned. But guess what? Like, honestly, this was this was fun. I, I mean, like, we love movies. Obviously, Absolutely. we're not a podcast that like makes fun of movies. Okay, this is our true feeling. A lot yeah. of times, we love the shit that we watch, but sometimes, you know, and I it, so, one breaks through, and you can't help it. And right? I kind of secretly, I love how bad it is because I, <laughs> yeah. as a kid, I this was like a venerated film to me. Like, oh my god, being an adult, man, being an adult is going to be so deep. And let me tell you right now, to your credit. I did read like an oral history of St. Elmo's Fire oh. that was written like not too long ago. And Rob Lowe actually thinks the movie sucks. So you're not, he's like, it's a hate watch. We all know this. I'm like, okay, cool. Now I feel better. I feel better about him. <laughs> I feel better about him. Rob Lowe knows that St. Elmo's Fire was kind of trash. So we're good. We're good. I love, I love an honest re- review of your life and career. Cause I have felt that about like, oh yeah, that bakery I worked at sucked. And for him, it's this movie, and it's fine. And I appreciate that greatly. And I cannot believe you read an oral... This is how much I know you love movies. You read an oral history of St. Elmo's Fire. You spent time fleeting moments of your life that you will never get back reading an oral history of St. Elmo's Fire. You're going to be at the end of your goddamn life and be like, I could have had three more hours. And I spent it reading about St. Elmo's fire, and your nurse is gonna be like, "Okay, Millie, that's nice. <laughs> Good night." <laughs> and then they're gonna be like, "She likes St. Elmo's fire. We're gonna play the song as she goes out. We're gonna play the love song, and you're gonna fucking jolt upright and be like, i 'I'm scared.' It is amazing <laughs> to me that you would do. Again, you are a real one because I Listen. love movies, but I am never. I am not doing that. I am not doing that." I don't know what compels me to to do these things. <laughs> Maybe if I had, if I if I took away the energy that I spent doing this, I'd probably like have twenty kids and be <laughs> married and live in Upper Peninsula. But I just don't. Like I just I can't help it. I gotta know. I gotta know the story. <laughs> you're so. a, you're a completist, and I I love I and appreciate it. And I will also remind you of this every year, like an like a like a shocking anniversary. Like remember when you told me that you read the oral history of. <laughs> I'll have a gift prepared. It'll be fire related. Oh my God. Holy well, shit. Listen, I could not have had more fun on this episode. We went into it thinking we we're on shaky ground because we got a movie that we didn't prepare <laughs> super much for. But guess what? It was fucking fun. I feel like both these movies contribute to the original idea of the theme, which is that kids are fucked up sometimes and they are they are in movies that we sometimes love and sometimes do not love so absolutely and this was fun it's just no matter what movies are great because they are fun even when you're not fully into it yes yes and i just love discussing them with you in any in any case but listen if you want to email us we, we gave you a lot to chew on this week. So if you want to email us, we're at I saw what you did pod at gmail.com. And like we said at the beginning of the episode, um, we're doing bonus episodes on Wondery Plus. So if you want, we usually read viewer letters on the bonus and we talk about the lead singer of Crash Test Dummies, etc. Send us send us letters for the bonus episodes. We we do read them and we love 
doing the bonus. So absolutely, and we also have a PO box if you want to send us handwritten letters. We do a lot of fuck Mary kills on the uh, recently on the bonus episode. Send us a handwritten fuck Mary kill. Why not? Oh my god, I would love a handwritten fuck Mary kill letter. That'd be so fucking funny. I will frame it. And you can also you can find us on our social media accounts at I Saw Pod on Instagram and Twitter. And just, you know, like, tell some friends to leave us a review. Leave your leave a five-star review yourself. If you don't want to write, you don't have to write. You can just say, I fucking loved it. Or you can just write St. Elmo's Fire and give us a five-star <laughs> review and leave everyone guessing what the hell you are talking about. What is this person on? Five-star <laughs> review, St. Elmo's Fire. What? <laughs> would actually like you guys to do that thank you very much um danielle as always it is such a fucking pleasure doing this podcast with you i i laugh so hard every time every time and like next week's also going to be a banger i don't know if you want to tell them what oh god the I almost movies forgot. are for next week um yeah okay oh my god you're not ready you're simply not ready the movies for next week are Roadhouse from 1989 and Urban Cowboy from 1980. Look, it's the end of the summer. Just give us a break. <laughs> give us a break. We're going out with a fucking bang, dude. That is a end of summer champagne jam, if you ask me. <laughs> it's a real corker. Oh, thank you so much. I absolutely, absolutely loved talking about all these movies. I'm just so grateful. As always, it's a fucking pleasure. Love doing this podcast with you. Love you guys. Thank you for listening. Bye. Bye. This has been an Exactly Right production. Produced and mixed by Casey O'Brien. Our theme song is by Tom Bryfogle. Artwork by Garrett Ross. Our executive producers are Georgia Hardstart, Karen Kilgariff, and Daniel Kramer. You can follow us on Instagram and Twitter at IsawPod, and you can email us at IsawWhatYouDidPod at Gmail. Follow I Saw What You Did on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you like to listen so you don't miss an episode. And if you like what you hear, rate and review the show. And visit ExactlyRightStore.com to purchase I Saw What You Did merch.